What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Every day, millions take to the internet to find love, a date, or just a hookup. While many encounters become exciting new relationships, some become devastating dates with death. I'm about to tell you the story of one such deadly online connection. Welcome to I Met My Murderer Online. I'm Patricia Brown, but you can call me Patches. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. In 2011, a man named Jack posted a job opening on Craigslist. We need someone to watch our farm down in southern Ohio. Live for free in a double-wide trailer. He made sure his victims were white, middle-aged men, so he could realistically use their identities to do things like get prescriptions. This is law enforcement expert Tom Omer. He asked questions about the relationships to make sure that nobody would be missing them or checking up on them. And he used these interviews to gauge the value of their possessions. Richard would sell most of his victims' possessions to pay for his life hiding from the police. He was looking for a caretaker to watch over his remote farm. Hundreds applied. Those who were accepted were thrilled to live a peaceful life in the Appalachian countryside. But none of them ever made it to that farm. It all started in Noble County, Ohio. 47-year-old Tim Kern was a quiet man, fresh off a painful divorce who wanted a fresh start. He was searching for peace, clarity, and most importantly, a purpose. So he went to Craigslist where he found the opportunity that was going to change his life, a job posting from a man named Jack. We need someone to watch our farm down in Southern Ohio. Live for free in a double-wide trailer. Nothing in the way of duties except to take in the peacefulness of the countryside and remark on the changing of the seasons and to make sure no one steals any farm equipment or perpetrates any mischief. The pay is $300 a week. Tim sent in his application immediately. It was exactly what he was looking for. When Jack reached out to set up an interview, he was thrilled. According to Craigslist's terms of service, this is criminal defense attorney Sarah Azari. They're not responsible for verifying any postings and it is up to the user's discretion on how they choose to use the site. There was no way to verify this or any job posting or know if any of the information Richard Beasley posted was true, including his identity. Jack was actually a 52-year-old man named Richard Beasley who has been in trouble with the law since his 20s. Richard had been involved in a string of robberies in Texas. In 1985, he was convicted of burglary and unauthorized use of a motor vehicle and sentenced to 40 years in prison. In 1989, he was placed on parole for 34 years. He returned to Ohio in 2004. 
When Richard returned to Ohio, it appeared as though he wanted to turn his life around. He began the training to become a chaplain and started a halfway house. Beasley surrounded himself with ex-criminals and prostitutes under the guise that he could help them. Richard was a devout man with a warped sense of morality who truly believed that he could better these people's lives. Richard Beasley advocated for the people who lived in his halfway house, even going as far as testifying in their court cases. However, the halfway house was not a safe space for the residents. Richard was later charged with selling drugs and managing prostitutes out of the house. Richard Beasley viewed himself as a mentor to many people in town, but especially to a young man named Brogan Rafferty. Richard met Brogan when Brogan was only nine years old. Brogan's home life was anything from easy. His mother was an addict, and his father was a strict man who believed and taught his son that men should not cry and should always be tough. Brogan found comfort in the church, and Beasley was an extension of church in his mind. Throughout the years, Richard went from somebody who gave Brogan a ride to church, to his mentor, his confidant, and ultimately his partner in crime. Before any of the Craigslist murders began, Richard confided in Brogan that there was about to be a warrant out for his arrest for a crime he didn't commit. None of it's true. I'm a man of God, for Christ's sakes. That was far from the truth. Richard Beasley had a warrant out for 15 prostitution-related crimes from his halfway house. Brogan was furious that his mentor was about to be unjustly arrested and agreed to help him hide out from the police. I think you're a very good fit for this. Tim walks into his interview with Jack, a.k.a. Richard Beasley. Richard has the gift of gab and a way of making people feel comfortable. Uh, It's just a couple other people I need to see before I can offer you the job. He asked all of his would-be victims the same questions, and if they didn't fit the criteria, he would just say he would, quote-unquote, let them know and leave, never contacting them again. These men thought they had missed out on an amazing opportunity, but they were the lucky ones. The men that answered his questions to his satisfaction had no idea what was about to happen. Because uh, we don't have any cell phone reception out on the farm, and is this going to be a problem? No, that's okay. I'm just looking for a place to live. Richard asked these questions to make sure he would not be caught. He made sure his victims were white, middle-aged men, so he could realistically use their identities to do things like get prescriptions. So, do you have a wife or kids or anyone that you need to keep in constant touch with? He asked questions about the relationships to make sure that nobody would be missing them or checking up on them. And he used these interviews to gauge the value of their possessions. Richard would sell most of his victims' possessions to pay for his life hiding from the police. Tim met all of Richard's criteria and he offered him the job. Tim was excited. This was his chance to start over and live a peaceful life. He was grateful to have found Jack online. Richard even had Tim fill out fake paperwork during the interview to make it seem more legitimate. Richard told Tim to meet him and Brogan at a parking lot in Canton, Ohio, about 20 miles south of Akron, and to bring all of his possessions. They would all drive to the farm together, and Brogan would come back, pick up Tim's car, and bring it to the farm later. Tim was unaware that his fate was already sealed and his grave already dug. Tim showed up with everything he owned, which was only a few garbage bags full of clothes and keepsakes in his old Cadillac that couldn't even drive on the highway. He only had $5 in his wallet. This is when Brogan became confused. Why did Richard choose Tim when he didn't own anything of value? Their previous victims had all been picked very strategically and Tim did not seem to match. Richard was becoming sloppy. 
He and Brogan had taken such care with their first two victims, 55-year-old Ralph Geiger and 51-year-old David Pauley. But things had gone wrong with their third victim, 47-year-old Scott Davis. Scott Davis was shot in the elbow and managed to escape and hide in the woods for seven hours before finding a house with their lights on. Davis was then able to contact the police and receive the much-needed medical attention. He was able to give police the information needed to find and arrest Richard Beasley and Brogan Rafferty. Richard knew what Davis escaping meant. He was about to get caught, and he did not have much time. Consequently, he was less prepared for his fourth victim, Tim Kern. But Tim Kern doesn't know about Ralph Geiger, David Polly, or Scott Davis. Brogan loads everything Tim owns into the car, still unsure why they were killing Tim Kern. But Brogan trusts Richard, so they all get in the car and get ready to depart for the farm. While they drive, Richard chats with Tim about the farm and how wonderful his life is about to be. Richard seemed to enjoy telling these stories, knowing full well that Tim was in the last hour of his life. Then Rich changes the subject and convinces Tim, just like his other victims, to take a detour into the nearby woods. Tim Kern didn't want to be rude to his new employer, but agreeing to walk into those woods ended up being a deadly mistake. Richard, Brogan, and Tim walk through the woods with Tim in the back by design to make him feel safe. Tim walks ahead for a second to hold back a branch for Brogan to walk safely through, and Brogan has another moment of guilt. Tim seems like a sweet guy, but like always, he shakes it off and continues the plan. This is how it always happened. They lured their victims out into the woods to search for something with sentimental value. The men wanted to make a good first impression, so they all agreed. Richard and Brogan allowed them to walk in the back so they could feel safer. Then, once near the pre-dug grave, they would make an excuse to turn around, putting the victim in front, making him an easy target. They approach the grave Rich ordered Brogan to dig earlier, but Tim doesn't notice. Brogan crouches down to let Tim pass, and that's when he hears a gunshot. Coming up, Tim Kern's murder doesn't go as planned, and the police investigation officially begins. What information can Scott Davis provide? And how does Brogan's father react to the news that his son is an accomplice to multiple murders? Find out when I Met My Murderer Online returns. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Richard Beasley and his 16-year-old accomplice, Brogan Rafferty, have murdered two men and severely injured another. They have taken their next victim, Tim Kern, out to the woods to kill and bury him. But the murder doesn't go as planned. Brogan looks up to see that Richard has shot Tim. Richard stands, holding his pistol, above Tim, who is on his knees. Brogan later told police that Richard then asked Tim, are you okay? As if Tim had just hurt himself on a rogue branch. Richard then proceeds to shoot Tim three more times in the head, and Tim slumps over to the side. But Tim still wasn't dead. Tim is somehow still gasping for air at this point. Brogan tells Richard that Tim is still alive. After being shot five times, Tim Kern was dead. 
This is law enforcement expert Tom Omer. Richard and Brogan dragged him into his pre-dug grave. Brogan told Richard that the grave wasn't deep enough to completely cover the body. But Richard didn't seem to care. With their first murder, Ralph Geiger, they had made sure the entire body was covered and even had doused the body in lime juice to hide the smell. Tim Kern was different. Richard knew he was already caught because Scott Davis had escaped and gone to the police. Police searched the woods and found Scott Davis's bloody hat, which led them to find the bodies of the other three victims. This is criminal defense attorney Sarah Azari. Experts were able to trace the IP address of who posted the original Craigslist job. It took them to a random house owned by a man who did not know anything about anyone named Jack or the murders. The owner revealed that he had rented out his basement to a man named Richard Beasley. They arrested Richard originally on the prostitution and drug charges that he was hiding from. When asked about Scott Davis, Richard claimed that he was just going to look at some wildlife in the woods with him when Davis pulled a gun on Richard. Richard claimed that the two men wrestled, and he was able to get the gun and shoot Davis in self-defense. Richard had an excuse for everything. He blamed Brogan for David Polly's death, saying that Brogan murdered Polly for initiation into a local biker gang his father was involved in. When it came to Tim Kern, Richard denied ever even meeting the man, despite all of the evidence to the contrary. Richard took no blame for any of the murders and was quick to place the blame on his 16-year-old accomplice. Police arrested Brogan Rafferty at his high school. I don't want to be a part of any of this. I really hope you can believe that. Richard shot him, but I helped bury the body. Mike Rafferty, Brogan Rafferty's father, was interviewed about his son's involvement with Richard Beasley. Good kid. You you wouldn't do anything like that. This has got something to do with that Richard guy. I'll, I'll bet you it's that Richard guy that did it. Richard Beasley had just been arrested on prostitution and drug charges. He and his 16-year-old accomplice, Brogan Rafferty, were charged with the murders of Ralph Geiger, David Pauly, and Tim Kern, and the attempted murder of Scott Davis. Richard Beasley's trial had begun. Richard maintained the entire trial that he was innocent. Eventually, you and Brogan Rafferty and Scott Davis all end up in the same car? Yes. And that would have been Brogan Rafferty? Sure would have. And, and where were you in the car? I was in the front uh, front seat on the passenger side. And, and Brogan was driving? Yes. And where was Mr. Davis? He was sitting behind me. When he took the stand, he even spun an elaborate story about how Scott Davis, the victim that escaped, had actually been the attacker. Would you describe in your own words then what happened after you got to the location where you were going to actually physically get out of the car and look at the farm? Oh, um, well, we we went uh, down to the farm and looked at the farm. And uh, and he was undecided as to whether or not he was going to take the job or not. He said, let me think about it. So by the time we get back to town where my truck's at, I'll have you an answer. So we left, and um, we went back up the drive, and instead of making a right to go directly back to town, Brogan made a left. And I, said, I asked him, I said, Brogan, why are we going this way? He said, well, this goes along the back of the farm, and uh, so he can see where the rest of the farm's at. And we go down this road, and this road is trash. There's been a partial mudslide or something, and uh, there's gravel and there's ruts. And Brogan's car is dragging real bad. And he says, and he said, guys, we're never going to make it to the bottom with all this weight in here. I thought we could get through. I'm going to let you off down here, go around and turn around. 
and we'll go back the other way. And at that point, he had picked a wide spot in the road, and he let Scott and I out, and he went down the hill to turn around and come back. And you and Scott Davis did what? Scott Davis then uh, pulled out a revolver and pointed it at my head. And I threw my hands up and about urinated in my pants. And I, I just said, why? And he explained why. He said, brother, you're a weak link. Now, tell us what you have learned in your years of connection with these violent motorcycle gangs, what that phrase means. It means he knew I was a rat an informant. And a weak link is used to describe somebody who either is a snitch or they think is going to snitch. And it's usually used as in you have to take the weak link out of the chain. Were you a weak link or a snitch? Yes, I was. And tell me about that. Was that here in Akron or someplace else? That was here in Akron. And who were you dealing with here in Akron? Initially, I dealt with... uh, Officer Alan Jones, who was on the street narcotics squad, but I had bought him information on multiple times involving uh, motorcycle gangs. Richard used all of his skills as a preacher and storyteller to spin the truth to the jury. After he said you are a weak link, brother. Yes. While pointing his gun at you, what happened? It misfired three times, about two feet from my face. And I ran in the woods, and he ran after me. I fell. I'm just not in a condition to run. He got on top of me. We were wrestling over the gun. It misfired, then it fired, then it misfired. So one time out of six times, and at a glance, I would say it was an old gun. It was pitted. That's all I can remember, and it was a revolver. And... He had his six shots, and he yelled when it went off, and when it went off, it went bang quick. In other words, he was continually pulling the trigger, so he yelled, and I pushed him away, and he just kind of pushed away, and I said, that's your six. So if he was going to kill me, he had to do it with his hands. Did you know whether or not he was apparently struck with one of the bullets? I thought he was from the way he reacted, and I thought it hit him in the arm. Because the way we were wrestling around, I had one hand on his gun hand, and the gun was pointed up. Well, as I said before, I trusted him. Brogan Rafferty took the stand in his trial. And uh, as I got to know him better personally, he became sort of my uh, spiritual mentor and uh, a counselor of sorts. What do you mean by spiritual mentor or counselor? Well, uh, I couldn't really go to my father with spiritual things. I could, but I just wasn't really comfortable talking to him because his responses would be limited. But I could go to uh, Rich and ask him anything, any questions. Uh, He would have me memorize scripture and quiz me on it and all sorts of things like that. Did you ever go to him for any type of problems other than spiritual? Yes. What kinds of problems? any problems that I was having. Like what? Uh, Family problems. Uh, If uh, I was having trouble with my mother, I could go to him. What kind of trouble with your mother? 
She uh, had addiction problems and uh, sometimes she would be gone. And uh, Rich was in the street ministry. So uh, he was literally the first person that I would call if I heard she was gone. At this point in your life, when you're getting close to Rich, what did you think about him? I thought he was a great guy. He was like the father that I never had. Okay. Did you ever think that he would harm somebody? Only uh, if there was a reason for it, such as uh, protecting a loved one. He never gave you any indication that he would harm people otherwise? No. Why would you say only if he was protecting a loved one? I know that he loved uh, his parents and his daughter very much. And uh, he was close with my father, so I was like his family too. So you figured he would protect you? Yes. Many noted that Brogan acted and even looked much older than his age. While he was only 16 at the time of his arrest, Brogan had grown up very quickly. Mike Rafferty, Brogan's father, divorced Brogan's mother because of her addictions. Since his father worked long hours, Brogan was already making himself breakfast and getting ready for school by himself when he was only five years old. In an interview with The Atlantic, Brogan described Richard Beasley in this way. He had a jolly laugh, a beard, a belly, and he always carried candy in his pocket. It was a period of time when I was younger that I was convinced that he was Santa Claus. Many questioned if Richard Beasley and Brogan had a sexual relationship of any kind, but both deny it. Brogan describes their relationship like an uncle and a nephew. Rafferty claimed the only reason he was involved in these murders was because Richard Beasley threatened him. Was there a point in your life when your opinion of Richard Beasley had changed? Absolutely. And when was that? That was uh, the morning that he murdered a man in front of me. Now, when you went to Southern Ohio, um, why were you going down there again? I was going down there just to be someone there to help him get this gentleman set up on a job. Okay. The, uh, and what were these guys, and who was this guy in August? What was his name? I found out afterwards that his name was uh, Mr. Ralph Geiger. Okay. I was uh, last walking back to the car, and uh, I was trying to uh, cross this, this stream uh, on these rocks. And uh, just as I had finally gotten my footing, I looked up, and uh, Mr. Geiger was uh, furthest towards the car. Mr. Beasley was behind him, and I was probably about 20 feet away. Tell the jury what happened next. And I looked up. Uh, Mr. Beasley pulled the pistol out from wherever he had it and uh, shot Mr. Geiger in the back of the head. How did he hold the pistol? Held it with both hands to the back of his head. What were you thinking when he pulled this pistol out and held it to the back of Mr. Geyer's head? That split second, uh, I didn't think it was real. It was as if uh, somehow I immediately slipped into a dream or something like that. How long did it take for him to pull this gun out and shoot Mr. Geiger? Probably a second to pull it out, two seconds, or a second to pull it out, and then another second uh, to shoot him. So it was immediately. Did you have time to say anything? I said to myself, 
Oh my God. What was going through your mind after he shot Mr. Geiger? That this wasn't real. Describe it to us. What was what was happening? When we came in, uh, the sun was out. It was a beautiful day. And it seemed like right at that instant uh, that the woods seemed to get darker somehow and that it was hazy and it just seemed like a completely different place. Were you scared? Right that first second, I didn't, nothing registered, but afterwards, <coughs> when it didn't seem to go away, probably a second or two later, yes, I was terrified. How were you feeling at that moment? Did you have any feelings? I felt like I had ice in my veins. What do you mean ice in your veins? I felt like I had icicles in the veins of my neck, like, uh, like animal fear. Did you think you were gonna die? Yes. Did you ever want Mr. Geiger to die? No. Did you? Very nice man. I'm Patricia Patches Brown. More of our story in a moment. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Friends and family members of the four victims came forward and spoke at the trial. Brogan even acknowledged their pain but never directly apologized. Uh, Your Honor, I believe that actions speak louder than words, but I can't really, I'm not in a position to make any actions to convince anybody anything. But, um, all I can really say is that, uh, well, first of all, that I agree with the prosecutor that this is my trust, not Mr. Beasley's. And that even though he is evil, in my opinion, deceitful, cruel, and a murderer, none of that takes me because I wasn't like this. And I thought that it was something horrible. Again, evil. But again, I was still a part of it. Um, something that I wanted to point out uh, more than anything in this, uh, out of all the notes that I took from this whole trial, is that uh, the idea was first brought up at the beginning of this trial that there were only four victims, Mr. Geiger, Mr. Pauly, Mr. Kern, and Mr. Davis. But I think that there are many more, all these family members that came out here today. None of them you know, have been mentioned until this morning that they were victims of all this. I've been thinking that. I've been thinking that they deserve to be at least recognized, that they have suffered too. Now, I've spent the last year sitting in a jail cell doing nothing else, literally nothing else, but thinking about all of this. I think of all the nightmares I've had, sleepless nights, what I consider to be suffering, and I think of what they must have gone through. And I think that if I've been through hell and back, as I believe I have, they must be living. And that's just my opinion. Uh, 
there's nothing I can say that will make anything better. And I don't think there's anything I could try to say to make it seem that it would be better that one insults people. I would just like to say that I was involved. Uh, I didn't like it. I wouldn't do it if I had any other choice. 2020 hindsight vision, you know, there are many options that I couldn't see at the time, but see now. Um, there's nothing I can do to make anything better. Brogan had a difficult childhood, and he claimed that his actions were out of fear of Richard Beasley's threats. But the jury had decided that that was not an excuse for his actions, and he was sentenced with the maximum penalty life in prison with no chance of parole. Every time I hear you referred to as a preacher, chaplain, or man of God, I'm sickened. No true man of God would take lives. On November 6, 2011, you shouted me several times like I was a rabid dog, hitting me once and shattering my elbow. Scott Davis and loved ones of the other three victims also took the stand to tell Richard and the jury how he had ruined their lives. I'm in pain 24 hours a day, seven days, a week due to the shattered bones in my arm. You sat across from me at that breakfast knowing my fate, grave dug and all. I laid in the woods for seven hours not knowing if I was going to live or die. I started to get cold due to the blood loss and figured this is it. The whole time I was in the woods, I prayed that I will make it out of there to see my family. They said I walked several miles to the farmhouse. I didn't remember my feet touching the ground. Thank you again, God, for saving me from that beast. You say you are a preacher. You took an oath in this courtroom to tell the truth in front of God. Everything that came out of your mouth was a lie, except for maybe your name, and I'm not sure about that, with all your aliases and lies. I'm sure you know the Ten Commandments. You've broken all of them. But three have come to mind. You're a liar, a thief, and a murderer. Vengeance is mine, say if the Lord. I wouldn't want to be in your shoes on that day. You say you know God, not yet. Not even the best lawyer's money can buy could get Satan off for murder. I'm in, I'm the one that got away by the grace of God that will haunt you the rest of your life. You're a worthless monster. You can't lie your way to, out of this. A juror of your peers has spoken on all accounts. I will be there if you get the death smiling with last words. You'll remember this face. Then. I guess I'm so sorry about the families and uh, of Tim, Dave, and Ralph. Thank you, Mr. Davis. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, it is my understanding that you have reached a verdict. Is that correct? All right. <laughs> While Brogan admitted to being involved in the murders, Richard Beasley still denied his own involvement. I say here today, officially and for the record, I have killed nobody. All right, the court has had the opportunity to view the forms with regard to count one of the indictment, aggravated murder regarding the death of Ralph Geiger. Uh, this jury, we the jury being duly impaneled and sworn, do hereby find that the aggravating circumstances that the defendant was found guilty of committing do outweigh the mitigating factors presented in this case by proof beyond a reasonable doubt. We therefore unanimously find that the sentence of death should be imposed on Richard James Beasley. On count two of the indictment, I'm sorry, count four of the indictment regarding David Polly, we the jury being duly impaneled and sworn, 
do hereby find that the aggravating circumstances that the defendant was found guilty of committing do outweigh the mitigating factors presented in this case by proof beyond a reasonable doubt. We therefore unanimously find that the sentence of death should be imposed on Richard James Beasley. Regarding count seven of the indictment pertaining to Timothy Kern, we the jury being duly impaneled and sworn do hereby find that the aggravating circumstances that the defendant was found guilty of committing do outweigh the mitigating factors presented in this case by proof beyond a reasonable doubt. We therefore unanimously find that the sentence of death should be imposed upon Richard James Beasley. Each of these forms is signed this 20th day of March 2013 in ink and signed by 12 jurors. Ultimately, the evidence and testimonies led the jury to a guilty verdict on all counts. Richard Beasley was found guilty of murder, attempted murder, kidnapping, and was sentenced to death. The defendant's statement was pretty much what we would expect. Uh, I can only say that the arrogance continues. Um, Just disgusting. He was just unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean... I I can't believe the guy would still carry on. This is a great day for the victims' families. Uh, I'm hopeful that they will have some measure of peace now that this death sentence has been handed down. He's on the ground and I'll be satisfied. Then I'll say closure, but you know, it was a long, tough 16 months. Beasley had tried multiple times to appeal his guilty verdict, even taking it as far as the Ohio Supreme Court, but the court's decision was upheld with a vote of seven to zero. While Richard Beasley still has not confessed to the murders, Scott Davis and the victim's families are relieved that he is living on death row. A man many have described as evil was able to go online and anonymously lure four men into the woods, killing three. A dream job turned into their worst nightmare when they met their murderer online. I'm Patricia Brown, but you can call me Patches.